Welcome to Not So Standard Deviation. This is episode 51. I'm Roger Pang from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I'm here with Hillary Parker of Stitch Fix. And this is our very last episode of 2017. Do you have anything to say about that? I guess I could have added a commentary, but I didn't. Okay, so I guess the answer is no. <laughs> no, it, that you need me here. Yeah, the answer is no. I was like going to say something and I didn't know what to say. It's like that moment when you're like awkwardly trying to say something to someone you just saw. It's like, it almost feels like that where I'm like, ah, what should I say? And then I don't think of anything. All right. Yeah. All right. We'll move on then. So we've been, we've been doing the podcast now. We kind of missed our, Ill, our anniversary, but we've been doing it now for like over two years. Wow. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Do you have any like reflections? on uh, hmm. you know on that experience yeah i mean i do have reflections a it's a great idea <laughs> so thank you roger for <laughs> You're bringing welcome. me in and then um i also feel like it was um i feel like it's a really great medium i'm surprised how much i've enjoyed this medium um compared to like blogging and twitter and other options so yeah, yeah. i have to agree uh -huh. with you on that I, I am sorry. My cat's totally like freaking out right now. <laughs> She's like, in case you're hearing new? some background. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's background noise. But, um, and then I also, I feel like, I mean, I've been just really pleasantly surprised with the fact that I feel like you and I like make progress on ideas via the podcast, which is a cool feeling. And I'm definitely glad that other people can hear it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's nice to have, um, it's nice to like have a platform where people can see ideas evolve the way you would with a coworker. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really like overlap. The medium doesn't really overlap with um, uh, like anything else. You know, it's like it really is like a like it's somewhere in between blogging and I don't know and like and just talking. I don't. Know, it's you know, it's like, but it's not like it's it feels temporary even though it's recorded. You know, uh, it's just kind of like. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it is interesting. I think. Yeah, I definitely have had those moments uh, where I'm like, hmm, which soundbite's going to be like thrown in my face in 20 years <laughs> when I run for office, you know? Right. But, and um... <laughs> and so, someone, is, uh, someone is tasked to listen to every single episode of Not So Standard Deviations. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Like, for like opposition it, research. Yeah, that, that guy from um, BuzzFeed, that's essentially how he made his career was doing that um with various people. I can't even remember who it was, but there's someone I, I remember. I, I can't remember the guy's name, but I, I can't remember anything about it. But I do know <laughs> that like someone's job was he just would go through like ancient archives of like late night talk shows and everything and find, you know, those key sound bites that, um, you know, would would be what people wanted to hear. Right. Right. Um, yeah. 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 So. Yeah, there's definitely I, I mean, the other thing with podcasts, I don't I feel like I've talked about this before, but it is just a level of it's a it's a different level of vulnerability than some other platforms, you know, like, I mean, scientific publishing is like you you're like allowing no vulnerability where you're like, I'm going to present this ironclad argument in a dispassionate tone <laughs> and like. If you disagree with me, you're going to do it on these. Like, there's just no personality in it, which is, like, good in some ways. But it's, you know, I mean, you are vulnerable because you're putting your work out there and you're putting, like, you know, your entire career kind of on a platter 
for people to judge. <laughs> yeah, but the, the the kind of product that you put out there is way more finished. I think you know exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been sanded down and honed. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this is much more like about like how you're thinking and your personality and all these other things, which is which is fun. But it's just most uh, people in data science or like scientific fields aren't used to that being part of what's on display. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like it's different from like Twitter where I feel like on Twitter, you, it's like you have to, I don't know, I kind of, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like on Twitter you have to kind of, it's almost like you have to put on a little bit of a persona, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And, and then you have to kind of like be consistent about it. I, yeah. I'm kind of down on Twitter right now. I'm not sure why. I just haven't been on there that much and yeah. feeling a little bit like, yeah, exactly what you're saying. It's this kind of, you kind of have to like perform in a certain way and do you have to engage in a certain way and certain things are rewarded and other things aren't and you know i have all my rants about that product but (laughs) (laughs) this feels like more natural you know it's just like i don't feel like i've got to do anything exactly yeah yeah as long as you're like comfortable (laughs) with like who you are it's a great way to (laughs) it's a great way to put yourself out there to lots of people and uh (laughs) <laughs> but you have to be pretty comfortable with who you are because otherwise that is not a fun feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I would agree with that. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to continue doing the podcast, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's my plan. I'm definitely, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm somewhat looking forward to you being back in American time zones. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, yeah, this is an especially late, late, late one for you, right? <laughs> not too late, not too late. But yeah, it's uh, <laughs> the like date after dark thing is, you know, might get a little old. Yeah. Some listeners. <laughs> well, you got a couple more months, but uh, I'll be back soon. Yeah. <laughs> Hillary kicking back and like her PJs. (laughs) (laughs) We are also talking about how this is like our last episode of the year. And so that's right. 2017, 2016 was a big year. 2017 was a big year. Um, I don't know if there's anything to reflect on there. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, people who've been listening to the podcast have been following us all along. Um, but, uh, I don't know. Is there anything particular, any good thing you particularly you want to highlight from 2017? <laughs> I mean, I got a new, well, oh yeah, that's right. I did not get a new job. That was 2016. But um, <laughs> no, yeah, like <laughs> I am still at the same job. My company uh, went public, which was exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then um, I was going to, I was going to point out for you that you um, had your first like true existential crisis this year. <laughs> As as a good thing or or what? I'm not sure. It feels like it's appropriate for the year, so you know. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I welcome 2018 with open arms. Yeah, yeah. Back to back to reality for you. Well, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. You want to do a little follow up? Yeah, sounds good. Follow up and correspondence. I'm calling this. Yeah. So, quick ones. Uh, David asked us about the colors in the Not So Standard Deviation logo. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> and I, 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 I brought this one. I had to actually copy the, I just like cut and pasted the code that makes a logo into my little outline here because I didn't feel like doing something 
more complicated. But the, I wanted to bring this out because the colors come from the R Skittle Brewer package, um, oh, which is uh, by Alyssa Frazee. Yep. And uh, the colors in our logo are Dodger Blue, Dark Orange, Lime Green, and, wait for it, Hot Pink. <laughs> you know, I have to say I recognize that Lime Green, Hot Pink combo from my days at Hopkins. Ah, okay. Those were some very, that was a very popular color combo. <laughs> I remember Ciprian Cranichano talking about that. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Or not talking yeah. about it, but he had a plot in a graph and he was, I just remember him kind of like, you know how he gets that kind of like proud of himself look and he was like, yeah, do you like the colors? Like, <laughs> 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 So I'm not surprised um, that a package from that department, because Alyssa was at Hopkins when she developed that, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and just uh, just so I'm clear, these colors they're built into R. You just have to you just name them and they will appear. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, okay, that one's easy. Um, we got some feedback on the LHC um, because we you and I knew nothing about the Large Hadron Collider, and um, and so on Twitter, Nick Radcliffe tweeted us. He said in in the Linear Dig Digressions podcast, which is kind of how, I think how this all got started. Um, Katie Malone, who's one of the co-hosts, uh, in one of the episodes says she thinks that one LHC experiment produces about 1% of the entire world's data. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Which is, wow. That is nuts. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, it's a lot, I think. Sounds like a lot. Yeah, that's too much. I'll put that's the... <laughs> You you sound like a parent. Like, why are you producing so much data? Like, what are you yeah, doing exactly. that for? <laughs> Have you seen much. BoJack Horseman? That was like an assignment from many episodes ago. Like, a couple. Of years. Anyway, one of the characters' kind of catchphrase is like, "That's too much, man," and that's like it's in my head. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been this doing my homework. Much. I haven't seen it yet. That's okay. That's okay. Um, no, yeah, that's 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 a mind-boggling amount of data. Truly, yeah. yeah. I'll put a link to the that episode so you can listen to the whole thing. But um, anyway, that answered that question. There was more Microsoft Excel follow-up. Um, we talked about how the chief financial officers were trying to get their people to not use Excel. Mm -hmm. And um, there was like a follow-up article in the, in the Wall I Street Journal. <laughs> the headline of which was, Finance pros say you'll need to pry Excel out of their cold, dead hands. Yeah. <laughs> I love the lead for the article because it was along the lines of like, we did not see that one coming, like a small article about Excel, like caused more feedback than we ever get on any story. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. Like people, there was passions were stirred about Excel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I'm surprised. Can't say I'm surprised. No, I, I think, yeah, I, I could see, I totally understand that feedback and that mental, that kind of sentiment, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's, it's to the point where if someone's asking me, um, my, my boyfriend was asking me about his department and whether they should move away from Excel. And I was kind of citing that article as like, well, probably not. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I don't think you want to die on that hill at work yet. Well, you know? <laughs> exactly. It's like, is this the thing that you're going to like stake the whole thing on? You know? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it's the, just so you understand the <laughs> what's going to go on here. Even though there clearly are better solutions out there. Like we all agree there's better solutions. And also, we all agree it's probably not worth it. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird kind of like saddle point in like this kind of, um, you know, you know, this kind of cost curve. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like the, the burden of changing is a little bit too much to kind of justify the benefits, it seems. Yeah. Another thing he was pointing out is that I didn't realize that Google Sheets is is quite deficient if you're doing like more advanced Excel stuff. And so it's it's like really limited because people will be like, oh, just use Google Sheets. But then if you're someone who does a lot of like programming and like VBA or whatever, like Visual Basic, the Excel macro writing, you can't do that in Google Sheets. And so yeah. yeah. I think they just feel so left behind where it's like, well, you know, you have people who've been doing that their whole career who aren't about to change. And so, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. It. I, I, it is surprising how much Excel can do. Uh, and I think if you're the kind of person who just takes like sums and means or whatever, then you're probably thinking, oh, yeah, you know, Google Sheets is fine. Like, what would you need more? Um, but there's a lot of stuff that you can do in, in Excel. And I think that's the kind of stuff that we we kind of uh, fight against you know, like, like in the sense that like the stuff that you do in Excel, it, it, it feels like it's very hidden and kind of non-transparent. Um, but the people who do it every day, like they, they kind of get that. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's going to be a tough one <laughs> and I have no advice for how to do it. So. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of feel like as long as Microsoft is around, you know, making Excel, like there's always going to be someone pushing for it, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I do sort of wonder in 10 years what this conversation will be like if people will start, you know, when you get the generation of people who right now are growing up with data science as a normal thing and learning some of these other scripting languages, then presumably when they become like, you know, intro like analysts at various finance in various financial roles that they will want to use the scripting languages over Excel, but well, you know, I'm not. So I've been thinking about this a little bit, and I'm not 100 percent sure. And I'll, let me tell you why. Um, so a while back, you and I had—I don't, I don't even remember what episode it was. You and I had a conversation about using Excel and how—and like how I told you that I, I used—I don't use Excel, but I use spreadsheets for um, for doing some like personal finance stuff. Mm -hmm. And you were saying that like I didn't need to do that. Like I just—I should just do it in R, and and there was really no need for me to do that in in a spreadsheet. And uh, I said, okay, you know, at the time I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot, right? So I gave it a shot. It didn't work. I, and I recently tried to do it again, actually. Really? I was like, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to like take all this data that I have in spreadsheets. And I'm going to like separate it out into like separate CSV files, kind of like, you know, like little relational database there. And then I'll write some scripts to kind of like suck it into R and to kind of like, and I wrote some functions to kind of like do the calculations that I like to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 like, you got to trust me. I, I really tried. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wrote, like, I a do believe that you know what you're doing. Yeah. I, I wrote a reasonable amount of code, actually, to kind of, like, do the things that I like to do. And it didn't work. I, you know, it oh. just, like, I, I, for some reason, I like, like, poking around at the numbers. And, um, and I think a lot of people do, like, kind of, um, what's the word? Kind of scenario modeling or, like, stress yeah. testing, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yep. And I feel like I need to see like all the numbers at once. And like when I put it into R, like I can't really 
I mean, you can, I guess you could put the numbers into a plot, I guess, but that would be very strange. You know, I mean, and so it's just so it's so funny because you're not the only person who said this. It's like the feeling that you want to see and touch the numbers. And that's when it like needs to be in a spreadsheet. And and not just like a summary table, but like all the numbers, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I, I don't know yeah. what it is. It's like there's something about it. Yeah. 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 But it's just so funny because do you think theoretically, like, it's almost like saying that the type of statistics we do for bigger data sets is like not sufficient for understanding the data, right? It, like for the personal finance application, you just want to be able to like see it all and be able to interact with it in a certain way. Do you feel like that's how you understand the data really well and like get it into your head, whatever you're trying to understand? Whereas, so it's like almost like saying that the traditional kind of data analysis techniques we use, like aren't sufficient for that use case. And so then are they sufficient for doing data analysis? You see what I mean? I, I see exactly what you're saying and I do not have a good response. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just think that the thing, the thing, whatever it is that I'm doing, and I don't have a label for it, but whatever it is that I'm doing when I'm like manipulating my personal, like, you know, finances mm -hmm. is just not the same thing. Like it's not the same thing that I'm doing when I'm like analyzing some other data, you know? It's like, you want to like, what's the right kind of counting money analogy here? It's like, you want to see all your, I feel like there's so many phrases that could work here, but you, you just want to like pile up your gold in one place and like look at it. I had that image of like Scrooge McDuck, like swimming through his like gold coins, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Like you want to feel like you're swimming through it. <laughs> so, but related to this, actually, I did have a conversation once, uh, you know, with Scott Zeger, who, you know, and, uh, is a colleague of mine at Hopkins. And he said that sometimes he, what he, he'll actually like, he likes to look at the data, even if it's like a subset, obviously if it's a reasonable size data set, you can't look at the whole thing. But even if it's just a subset, he likes to like look at the numbers and he'll sometimes even like write the numbers down on paper, just like a small, like a column or two, um, just to kind of like, I don't know, get like a feel for it. Yeah, I'm into that. You're into that? It's like what we were talking, yeah, weren't we talking about that last time? It's like, like experience the data, like have a full body data experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds silly, but it's real, I think. It's uh. I totally um, agree. Well, I especially like, I feel like you just, there's, I've actually wanted to do uh, some of what he's doing in that I want to like write out our data dependency tables by hand. And it's like very important to do it by hand to me. It's like, I'm actually, I, for a while I was collecting the data for that in sort of a tidy data format where it's like, you know, each table, I would have a line for one dependency that that table has. And then like, presumably you can like map the whole tree from that. So I knew I had to create it that way, but then I just wanted to be able to draw it and like with a pencil. <laughs> Cause it gives you some sort of like tactical, like tactile sense of like, ooh, that's a lot of dependencies. I had to draw 52 lines from right. this table. Like, Yeah, like you really yeah. feel it. Yeah, exactly. Which is, yeah, obviously, like, most data engineers are not going to be into that solution. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, once I started doing it, I felt like I understood our data so much better, where it's just like, oh, yeah, I've, I've drawn this whole system. I know exactly how it works. Um, I'm with you on that. Yeah. 
That's a good, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a good point. I feel like I should put my money where my mouth is. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just, Literally. To, <laughs> just to tie it up. I, I, I think the, the Excel like devotees, um, I think they have a similar kind of feeling, a feeling of attachment to like the kinds of numbers that they're working with, you know, um, and the kind of modeling what, that they do which might seem a little unfamiliar to us in terms of how it looks is like they're, they have, I don't know, it just feels visceral to them. You know, and I think if you take that away, it kind of, they don't, they don't understand it as well, you know? Yeah. And it's like, um, well, it's just funny cause it's, um, sometimes I'll think about this as a data fluency issue where it's like, if you think about it, you know, you want to like express some analysis and you need like the language to do it in. And so I'll often think like, oh, well, of course, like the way I feel when I'm using tools that I'm not as familiar with, that's just like this frustrating, like trudging through something. Whereas when I'm on R, I'm just like, I feel like it's like Hadley Wickham has a great way of putting it where it's like the bottleneck should be your brain, not the language. Um, but like for you, I would assume <laughs> the bottleneck is not the language for you using R, so right, yeah, exactly. Like I feel like this is one of those cases where like it's not the issue is not like oh there's some weird language that I need to learn, you know. It's not like I'm trying to do this in I don't know in Julia or something, you know. It's just like it just didn't work for me. I don't know, like I and I can't quite describe what it was, you know. I think we should pursue this because <laughs> like, maybe the answer is in here somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean it's different in the sense that like. This is not for me. It's not like I don't know. It's not like it's. I'm not looking for answers per se. You know, I, I don't know. It's not like it's not like a traditional investigation. I guess right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, where you want like a narrative. You want to say like, here's the story of this experiment, and this happened, and that, and here's this plot. Whereas with money, it is more like just being like, I want to sit and look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, another thing, I think one of the things that's very attractive about about something like Excel is that often the way that you build calculations or models is very piecemeal. So you, it's very incremental, right? Yeah. So you say like this cell depends on this cell, and then this cell depends on this cell, and this cell depends on this cell, and like, and at the end of like twenty cells, you could have like a compound interest calculation or whatever, right? And and that in reality, that's just the formula. Like you can get you can jump straight to the last cell if you really wanted to. You don't have to build it cell by cell. But like, there's something about that, like, kind of building it and seeing each number at each iteration. Um, it's almost like a little for loop, just all laid out for you, right? Um, and uh, I think there's something about seeing the numbers build up, even though those intermediate numbers are, don't really mean anything, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I know what you mean, actually. Yeah, I have a, a similar financial sheet that I look at. That's like, oh yeah, these this number is like a monthly summary, and then that one's like the annual summary or whatever. And that does feel more satisfying. Yeah. Wait, did the, did did you, did you just say that you use a spreadsheet? I know. Oh, I I was gonna say that in the conversation okay. at some point. <laughs> Is that I feel like I have a similar. I mean, I'm not as convinced. I'm not as convinced that if I tried to run this in R, that it wouldn't be. I would be like. I think I would be a little more satisfied with the R solution, but I think it's like you have to be more creative about what you print at what moments for something like this. Yeah. 
like so for example you talking about you know you want to see the incremental changes usually when i'm printing results like creating a table of results for business partners i'll do like whatever incremental things i think are important so i'll say you know like this was the effect of the experiment and this is it translated into this metric with kind of error bars or whatever and so um i think that it's it's sort of like you can create the satisfying kind of incremental seeing the bigger picture in an analysis that's not done in Excel, right? Well, I think one of the things about in that example that you just gave is that like you're in some sense, you're creating a product that's going to be given to someone else and in some concrete form, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is like, that's not what, how I think of my own like spreadsheet. Like it's never finished. Like it's never going to be finished. It's just like, it's ongoing and it's just like this thing that changes over time. Yeah. Um, it's like a little dashboard. It's like your little monitoring dashboard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I don't care that like, I don't care about what it looked like last week or, you know, whatever. It's just like, it's always updating. And, um, I just want to know what the current values are and like, and then I can tweak it a little bit, if, you know, if I want to change some formula. So I, I don't know, I guess I just, um, I felt like using R for that was a bit overkill because R is like designed to do more than kind of what I really needed, I guess. Yeah. But then I guess that, that makes me think though, that in, when you're talking about a financial analyst working at a bank or something, they do need a narrative eventually from like, I agree, they can set up their monitoring dashboards like in Excel, very complicated Excel sheets, but eventually they're going to need to write some sort of report for someone, and that is going to involve a lot of copy-pasting from that Excel sheet. <laughs> and that's where the whole system breaks down, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I'm not trying to say that, like, my personal finance situation is equivalent to, like, running some Fortune 500 company, you know? <laughs> 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 like, you know... Roger Pegg Incorporated is going to be working on a slightly slimmer budget, you know, than a... Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, well, <laughs> here's a question. Do you, like, have report readouts for, you know, various family members? or like, Are you the only consumer of this data? Well, that's the other thing. Yeah, I'm, I am the only consumer uh, of the data. And one of the interesting things, phenomena that has occurred is that, like, as, like, certain sheets get, like, more complicated, I start creating, like, new spreadsheets that are, like, summaries of the other ones, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. So it does, you can see, like, okay, I can see how this is, like, you could, you know, do this more programmatically. But I don't mm -hmm. know. This mm -hmm. is, you never sh you never share the sheets with like your spouse. No, she doesn't seem. I try to, and she doesn't seem to care. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, she cares about like the bottom line. You know, she doesn't care about all of, like the. No, so you have a report. You have like your spousal, you know, quarterly report to generate. You could do some like um... user testing with her to be like, oh, like what does she want to hear? Like what type of delivery mechanism works? Like you could really optimize this communication. You think so? Yeah, I could maybe A-B test it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be a hard one to pull off. But <laughs> yeah, you might have to do like a like a crossover trial. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, one quarter, do it one way in a, a different way. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. But how do you do that? Do you just like look through your spreadsheets and kind of memorize the key values to tell her eventually? I think she, I think, prefers to get a, a very high level overview of the situation. Uh, and it's more like, are we broke? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's like, you just need to create the dashboard that's, it's like the websites where it's like, are we broke.com? And then. <laughs> 
ego and it says no. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I feel like this was good child rearing on my dad's part that he he had his like intricate like 57 cell, 57 sheet Excel solution for, you know, personal finance. And then um, eventually started like, you know, it was like as I got older, it was like folding me into like the adult responsibilities and would like show me the various sheets and what they did and what they calculated and stuff. And so that was like a good coming of age activity for me. Yeah. 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 I think, um, so you can look forward to that. Yeah. I think for us, it's more like it, there's a very clear division of labor here. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, and the whole point of division of labor is that you don't have to worry about <laughs> certain things. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I'm the only consumer at the end of the day, I think. Yeah. I feel like in that situation, there's really not like a collaborative. I would love to hear people's like collaborative solutions to that because I doubt there are many. <laughs> Can you imagine the chaos if like two people were poking at one of these kind of like stream of consciousness spreadsheets? Oh, that would like, be a nightmare. Oh my God. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And so it's like a very clear, it's like, yeah, you can have both people care and both people have their own like intricate spreadsheet situation. But I, I, I would love to hear from listeners if there are people who are like, yes, we actually do git commits <laughs> with like our latest projections and like change the modeling. <laughs> like we actually, there was a brief period where like right around kind of right when we or very earlier on in our relationship where we we each had separate system they weren't like so they were independent systems right for kind of tracking finances um and uh and so we had very different approaches but we didn't have a situation where we were both like poking at the same spreadsheet you know so like it yeah. wasn't, there were no race conditions basically <laughs> <laughs> everything was separate yeah but i mean i think it's sort of interesting to think about that when the I think it's probably one of these scenarios where in other scenarios, you might have two people contributing to the same project and that's fine. But because these types of projects are so much just like mapping out like your cognitive process of understanding numbers, <laughs> right. it's not yeah. something you would want other people to mess with at all. Yeah. It feels very personal. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Hey, I want to see that number after that one. Cause like, I think about this kind of in this sequence. Right. Yeah. And you, you don't want the executive summary. Like, you're like, no, 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 that's the opposite of what I want. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, this turned out to be a, a, a more in-depth topic than I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what did it start as? I don't even remember. Uh, there was a follow-up to that Wall Street Journal article. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. That's. I was really pleased with that second article. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's almost like, you know, like the whoever that reporter was kind of like shook the little like beehive and all these bees like flew out, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like just they like, had no oh idea. my God. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like that's just, I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's one more bit of follow-up that we have to do. Um, and it relates to the paperclip game, the universal paperclips. Yeah, I haven't played yet. Yeah. You haven't played? No. Okay. <laughs> um, a, a number of listeners appeared to have took up the, taken up the game, and um, I was tickled to see that it it 
it, it, it ate up a number of people's weekends. Um, <laughs> one nice thing that about the good. game is that it can, at most, it can like eat up a weekend. Like it's not going to eat up a month, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but in particular, uh, Margaret Jones on Twitter called me out, said, I can't believe I, meaning me, uh, discussed the paperclip game without mentioning the whole point of the thing. Um, oh. And, uh, and I, I didn't mention it because I felt like it was a bit of a spoiler. So, um, uh, wait, anyway. so then should you mention it? What the point of the game is? Yeah, if it's a spoiler. I'm not going to mention it. No, I could, not until you play it. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, I have like the holiday coming up, so I have some time to kill. I'm not on sabbatical like some people, but, <laughs> you know. You, you need some you know point, pointless activities. So uh. No, I totally do right now. Like it's all the end of year you know so it's i feel like this time of year is never feels productive yeah it's so it's always like we're, we got to close out the year here <laughs> yeah start, exactly start fresh yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually oh i forgot there's one more little bit here uh another follow-up on gans generative adversarial networks um and this comes from tyler schneblin who uh, wrote an article way back, actually, not recently, um, about ha- comparing these gener- generative adversarial networks to, like, uh, art forgers. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, so I, his, his analogy is kind of like they're people who, are, who, who, try to, who try to create forgeries, and then there are people who try to detect forgeries. Um, and each, you know, pe- each person, to each type of person has their own set of skills, and they draw on data and have kind of inf- information that they use to d- either to detect a forgery or to create a forgery and they're basically adversaries right they're trying to they're kind of they're trying to one up the other to get and the forger is trying to get to the point where the the detector can't tell and the detector is trying to like you know discriminate between forgeries and reality um and 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 that was kind of like the analogy for these general gen- sorry generative adversarial networks and how they tr- how these neural networks are trained against each other Mm-hmm. Um, so that anyway. reminds me of the wire. It's like this, like the classic tale of like the cop and the bad guy, and how they're actually more similar <laughs> than they might seem. <laughs> <laughs> and they like help each other, you know. Um, yeah, they're kind of like two sides. They're two sides of the same coin, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, I'll put a link uh, to that article uh, by Tyler, and uh, so people can read it. It's a nice one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. I think that that's all I have. Do you have, you have any other follow-up? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, follow-up section still. I do not. <laughs> we just had like 30, 30 minutes of follow-up, so. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fine. We went in the Excel wormhole as per usual. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to do the New York article? Yeah, yeah. This is just a quick... Um, I just wanted to call attention to what I thought was a really stellar um, data science article that came out in the New Yorker, November 27th issue. Um, And it was essentially, it was about a journalist, a former journalist who was um, trying to create algorithms to detect serial killers. Um, And it was quite the tale of like, you know, the quote unquote unsexy part of data science of like collecting data, figuring out where you can get data. Um, you know, it's not, 
like there's not like a as clean of sources of murder data as you might want um (laughs) and so uh but this guy just was like obsessed with this idea of creating um, a serial killer detector and actually did a pretty good job of it um and so it was just like a really fun article like a fun read as a data scientist um to hear about this very uh, unconventional application so. Uh, well, I mean, was the idea that we wanted to discriminate between? Uh, what, I guess what were the what were the kind of inputs to this kind of modeling? I guess. Yeah, I mean, so there was a lot with like um, location. There was some understanding of people usually, like, I, so I think the idea is that serial killers undetected are obviously like quite dangerous because they're going to go and like kill a bunch of people, um, and so uh, detecting them is important and. Uh, more often than you would think there will be a cluster of murders in an area where they haven't quite realized the probability that that might be a serial killer at work versus just like you know three to five disjointed murders um and so they so he was essentially looking at that and many times would actually detect so essentially i think there was um there's so much covered in this and i i don't remember every detail but He's created, he's since left and created like a website um, called the Murder Accountability Project. Um, and then it, they can like map probability distributions of where the serial killer might be located based on where the murders take place. And then prior knowledge of, you know, like, oh, usually it's like not too close to home, but then they've also shown that, um, like the longer someone is driving, the less likely they are to do a murder because it's like there's some name for it where it's like, you know, essentially, you know, you get too far away from home and you're like, maybe this isn't a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> OK, it's like so horrible. But um, anyway, so it's just it was really cool work where it was looking at um, like finding these clusters of murders and alerting the police department that there might be a serial killer in the area. Um, and it's, it's kind of like an open source ish thing. And then, so the data going into it is, yeah, kind of, it's, it's pretty, um, it's like police records and the method and the weapons and the location, um, things like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The person, their description. Um, yeah. Like it's mostly women who are killed by serial killers, which I, Uh I guess makes sense when I think about movies i've seen (laughs) okay yeah Uh, wait so so is it like basically like given this set or the these murders that have occurred what is the likelihood that there that was the work of a serial killer is that like kind of the basic yeah i think let's see so looking at the website it's called murderdata.org um they have this like um yeah it's like looking at these murder clusters so i think it's uh, let's let's see actually metro clusters i think it's um creating like i'm not sure that they're doing the probability of um like a cluster of murders being a serial killer but more the conditional pro the conditional probability of given that there's these murders like if you if you assume it was a serial killer where is that serial killer living Oh, okay. Like, is there one in the area? Uh, exactly. You know, given yeah. given the information that we have, yeah. Okay. 
And there's some pretty like startling statistics in there too of like murder solve rates and in Flint, Michigan, for example, the like what would you think the murder solve rate is for Flint, Michigan? Uh I have no idea. I would say my sense on in general is that it's like 60%, I don't know. <laughs> I think it was something like like 15%. Oh real wow. I, yeah. Yeah. Let me well now let me like fact check that. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it was low, it's like though. There are also a species of false positive that Hargrove calls the Flint effect. Some cities, such as Flint, Michigan, are so delinquent in solving murders that they look as if they were beset by serial killers. Oh, God. I'm sorry, that's like, I shouldn't laugh, but that's like, that's so awful. So, yeah, it's a... Uh... It's, there's some really, I mean, there's just stuff in there. That's why I was saying it's such a great read as a data scientist, because it's just like very grounding where you think that we have something like figuring out murders, like somewhat on lockdown, but the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like even creating the models to do it are like to, to detect these types of things are not easy, but yeah. Um, yeah, it was a satisfying read, so I, I highly recommend it. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you ever read that book, uh, Homicide, Life on the Streets? No, I didn't read the book. I watched some of the first season of the show. Of the TV show? Yeah. So this is a, this, the, the show was based on the book, which was written by David Simon, who also wrote The Wire. Um, and this is one of these projects that he did where he kind of like embedded in, in like a homicide unit in the Baltimore City Police Department for... I don't know, for a couple months, I think, or maybe a year. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's a good book. Uh, and the TV show is only kind of, it's kind of, it's related, but it's not completely related. Um, and uh, and one of the things they were saying is like, uh, is that the, the homicide detectives, um, like almost every time that they solve a case is mm -hmm. because the, the person just, the, is because the person just admits to doing it. Yeah, uh, like there's it's no like there's yeah. no special magic to like catching these people. Um, yeah, and, uh, and that is so, not what you know the media would have you believe. Or, not or, the media or television but, shows. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> entertainment media would have you believe. <laughs> yeah, so I can see that if you're in a place or situation where that's not happening, then you're just not going to solve these mm -hmm. cases. I guess. Yeah, I would be curious to know what it is for, for Baltimore. Um, I believe, I mean, I think I know this number because there's, um, you know, various charts uh, on the website. Actually, they are powered by Tableau, believe it or not. Oh, really? Okay. I believe that yeah. data is publicly available. I just, I can't put my finger on it right now, but. Yeah, I'm not sure what it was. Like, I, I'm again, I'm a little foggy on the specific details, but I do know it wasn't like this guy was like, here's my clean data set. I'm going to run analytics on it. I mean, I think he spent a huge amount of time trying to collect the data for this, um, for this model. And so it was not, it, it was not like a, as, as cleaned up and like openly available as you might think. So I can, oh, I can believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like in PDFs in various places or something. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um, I have a similar, I have a somewhat less 
uh, dark topic, but still a little bit. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this relates to actually, this came up um, twice in the last couple of weeks. Uh, in terms, of, this is relates to estimating the number of deaths from Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And my colleague, uh, well, I guess my blog colleague, Rafael Rosari, uh, wrote a post about this and looking at kind of um, the uh, number of deaths uh, kind of reported um just kind of uh, is looking at kind of the number of deaths that were attributable to the hurt that the kind of the that the the government had attributed to the hurricane and looking at just the total number of deaths uh kind of during that time period um mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and then and then a couple of days later or maybe a week later the new york times did a very similar analysis yeah. um with basically looking at the same thing, looking at the, you know, the number of deaths that were that were kind of attributed to the hurricane and, and just the total number of deaths that occurred. And then relating that to the kind of usual number of deaths, obviously, because, you know, people are dying all the time um, mm-hmm. it, it, that you would expect to see in Puerto Rico at that time. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and the summary was, you know, it's, it's one of these things where it's like the summary was like, I think they claimed there's 50 some or maybe 60 deaths attributable to the hurricane. Um, but if you looked at the number of people who died in that month, um, it was like on the order of, it was like a thousand or something like that. I and, see, yeah. I remember getting that push notification and being very angry about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I didn't realize Rafa, did Rafa publish that on the Simply Statistics blog? Yes. Yes, he yeah, did. And, yeah. uh, I don't, I can't remember where he got the data from, um, uh, but, um, the numbers are very similar. Um, yeah. he got and, scoops, but that's okay. No, he got. (laughs) So, and I think this is the kind of thing I. I think I've actually done a little bit of work in this area. I haven't published anything, but like one of my postdocs, one of my former postdocs, uh, Brooke Anderson, has done a lot of work with natural disasters. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, and one of the things that I learned through her work is that like you know the official death counts are always like ridiculously low. Um, Really. yeah, Yeah. If you look at like hurricanes, floods, heat waves all kinds of natural disasters the the official attributable death counts are, are always extremely low mm-hmm. um and uh because you know it's a little bit tricky because if someone dies of a heart attack it's uh, you know it's like yes it's possible the hurricane caused that heart attack to occur but mm-hmm. they still died of a heart attack right right and so well yeah i mean we've talked about this in relation to yeah your research with pollution where it's a very difficult thing to quantify because it's not like a, like yes, this happened because of that. Done. Yeah, and I think, but I think as like data scientists or statisticians, we're used to kind of like we we naturally just kind of make inf- do inferences, right? So if we see that like in a like a hurricane, something as dramatic as a hurricane occurs, and there's like a tenfold spike of deaths like the next day or or the next week or whatever, right? Like we we kind of draw that connection almost without thinking right <laughs> right mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. because it's such a such a sudden spike whereas i think like medical examiners and coroners they have certain protocols that just work in a certain way and unless it's like a hurricane blew you off the top of your house and you fell and then you kind of got thrown into the street and died like yeah then yeah. Uh, th- that that might be hurricane related death but mm-hmm. if it's anything other than that it's going to be whatever that other thing is you know like um and so it's um i think i think people i I know there was some sense in my mind that there are people were there was like a government conspiracy here um Mm -hmm. especially because uh you know the trump was claiming that oh there were so few deaths um Mm -hmm. and exciting this you know the 64 number 
Um, but mm-hmm. I do think that it's, um, and the New York Times article does say in the middle that it's like, it's not that straightforward to assign cause of death. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, but one of the things that's kind of, that's often a dead giveaway in this kind of situation is if, you know, if you have a lot of deaths from sepsis, right? So, which is like mm-hmm. a bacterial, you know, infection that generally right. does not occur unless you have situ- conditions that are like, you know, caused by a hurricane basically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, Anyway, I just thought it was an. I think Rafa's post and the New York Times article—they're both good. It's an interesting kind of data analysis and looking at kind of essentially looking at residuals, right? So you have an expectation, and then you have the observed, mm-hmm. and if the residual is like way off uh, the mark, then it's like, well, you know, you, you try to make an inference about what caused that. And I think it's interesting because here I think it's super obvious <laughs> that like, yeah, hurricane occurred, and you have like a thousand excess deaths, right? Um, but then the question is like how if you were to lower that a little bit, you know, and get it so it's like instead of a thousand excess deaths, like maybe there's five excess deaths or something like that, then it's like you're getting into my world where you're like talking about pollution, right? And so it's like not as you, you can't make uh, such a dramatic picture like that. It's much more like this is the kind of analysis where you don't need any sort of statistical model, right? You just look at it. You just look at the data and it's obvious, right? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can but as that the... effect size gets a lot smaller, then you, you have to use the model because you can't see it in the data. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's super. I mean, gosh, it would be great to have um, those methods used more frequently in these cases rather than just looking at, like you said, the official reporting, which isn't even really, uh, it's like some, you you get the sense that it's, you know, journalists going to like the police and being like, what should we report on? The police are like, well, they do track this. And you know what I mean? Like, it yeah. doesn't seem like it was necessarily ever thought to be the the best way of representing it. But then it just became commonplace. Um, like looking at deaths directly attributed in their death report or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And I think on the other hand, I'm not like, sure I expect the coroner or the medical examiner to be to be like on the spot in the heat of the moment doing these statistical analyses to say, okay, well, how many attributable deaths were there? <laughs> you know, you know, given historical data and, uh, you know, it's like they've got a lot of this stuff going on, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, it's um, sort of this, it's like this proxy for the cost of the hurricane. And it's not even necessarily a good proxy, <laughs> but. What, what What's the proxy? The, the Just the number of deaths? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's like people want to open up their newspaper and know how bad it was and use the number of deaths as this metric for it. But yeah, it's so much more complex than that. <laughs> so anyway, that's just my uh, commentary on that. Yeah, topic, no, it's but... super cool. I'm glad I was really glad to see that New York Times analysis. I didn't even realize Rafa had done it, too. So, um... yeah, it's, uh... so Rafa got re- what we got. He got reverse scooped. Uh, by yeah. the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, Just, no. Uh, oh, right, right, right. I see what you're saying. Yeah, he got... Well, it's like the more frustrating one in media for journalists when they're like, I had that story a week ago and no one cared. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the big name journalist, big media didn't, but... Yeah. Um, it's an important story, obviously. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about drama and machine learning? 
Yes, I would love to hear about this. I did not hear anything about this. Well, I, I kind of obviously like I'm not in the area, so like I just kind of saw some stuff fly by on Twitter, and it looked like there was drama. But um, so the NIPS meeting, which is the Neural Information Processing something meeting, yeah, I would <laughs> say the worst worst name conference to date, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I, I think we can be together on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, it happened, I think, last week uh, or maybe two weeks ago. Um, and there was a lot of tweeting going on. And um, there was apparently someone, this guy Ali Rahimi, gave it like a keynote lecture um, and uh, mentioned that current um, machine learning is is essentially equivalent to alchemy, right? Where you're just kind of like putting stuff together and stuff comes out, <laughs> right? Um, I guess it's well. I guess it's not quite like alchemy in the sense that alchemy doesn't work, right? But <laughs> but, but otherwise, I think the analogy kind of holds. Um, yeah, interesting. But, but the, the point is that we're doing we're, we're doing a, we're doing a process that we don't understand, and we're getting a result, right? Um, yeah. And he gave huh. a kind of apparently like a keynote lecture on that, and um, and I guess uh, a couple people, including including Jan LeCun, who's uh, at Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and did a lot of the deep learning research, um, re- responded basically, if my summary would basically be like that we do that all the time. Like we do this kind of stuff all the time that we don't understand, but we do it because it produces results. Right. And so like, what's the big deal? Um, like flying airplanes, right? Well, I That's think we kind of know I feel like I learned that in physics. No, no. It's like something about like getting the lift, like the way that they thought airplanes worked like the plane wing they thought it was like the differential and pressure but then you can have planes where wings don't create a differential pressure and they still work maybe this was like okay. true when i was a kid <laughs> and has since been resolved but <laughs> that was uh, my understanding the, of the situation you think the laws of physics have changed since you were a kid <laughs> no but like maybe that was just like a, a little exaggerated for effect for like eighth graders um where it's like, we don't understand why planes work, but we know they do. Well, I think his point, and I, I mean his, I say, uh, I think his point was that um, just like, just because we don't 100% understand how something works doesn't mean, does it, it's not a justification for like not doing it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And um, because we do it all the time and eventually we kind of figure it out, right? Yeah. Uh, if uh-huh. it's really important. And um, and then, so the original person kind of responded and in a, I think it was like in a Facebook post actually um, mm-hmm. that um, he totally agreed that like, yes, we do this all the time. But the point is that like, I think from his perspective, I guessing he's like trying to, if you're trying to teach deep learning or something or something really complicated in general, you know, I run into this too, which is like, if you don't really understand it, you know, what you end up teaching is just like a sequence of operations, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like step one, do this, step two, do this and step 200, you're done. Right. Um, and and that feels as like someone who's teaching something that's very unsatisfactory, right? Because it's just like I just gave you a sequence of operations. I haven't really doesn't feel like I've taught you anything, you know? Right, right, yeah. Um, and I think I guess I don't teach deep learning, but I'm guessing if you do teach deep learning, that's kind of what it's like. It's like there's no like it's diff- you can't extract these like general principles out of it. Seeing like here's what's going on, you know, and here's why you do step three because it's step four, like this is needed or whatever, you know, I, you know I, I'm not, a, maybe I'm not saying it well, but like, it doesn't no, feel yeah. like you're teaching a general principle. It just feels like you're teaching a recipe, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I guess 
what so was the was the point of the keynote essentially talking about pedagogy or was it just I guess like what was the takeaway? I think, I think that well, I think the takeaway the original takeaway was kind of decrying the lack of any theory, right? Yeah. And um and the and and he I think the original person was trying to rally people to kind of do more theory, basically, to try mm-hmm. to understand this more. Um right. and I think there's a you know, there's kinda of, it's kind of like it's kind of a disincentive to, to kind of work on theory because there's so much to be gained by just like running the models. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and worrying about how it works later, you know, cause and, and, when, and when I say gained, I mean like there's a lot of money at stake here. Like it's like how many there's untold startups that are like banking on deep learning. Right. So, yeah. Um, right. Right. I don't think Jan LeCun is going to be the one like spearheading this effort necessarily. Well, I, so. he, he kind of, he kind of punched back with the usual, like, you know, theory is great and all, but it's like totally useless. Like, it's theory is only use, useful in these like in these trivial cases that never occur in real life, right? Um, oh, huh. and uh, so like, interesting. You, you can't be like, we need theory is going to save us because the theory is always like in these artificial situations, right? Um, and so, wait, and, I, okay, yeah, but surely that's not true, though. I mean. Can, can't you apply deep learning methods just like a wildly inappropriate data set and get weird results and need to understand why that was the case? I mean. Yeah, no, no. You, yeah, I think so. But the point is that like it's not necessarily true that the theory is going to work in that case. Like if you look at something like, I don't know, like the central limit theorem, you could argue is is useful theory. But um, I, it tends to be applied in situations where maybe it's not appropriate. Um, and so. It's and so in the situations where it is appropriate, tend not to be realistic, right? And so, um, and so I guess if deep learning were to come up with more theory, that might be nice and all, but the theory might only be relevant in situations that are not realistic. I can see what he's saying, but also like it seems just like a classic. They have such different motivations. Like if one person's kind of talking about education and pedagogy, and like like the like it's hard. You feel like you're teaching cookbookery versus the person like like Jan LeCun is like working at Facebook <laughs> wanting to like revolutionize the industry like those are not the same people <laughs> not the same set of motivations right I totally agree that's exactly kind of what I walked away from like I feel like if you're working at Facebook and you're an engineer there like you're building a product right <laughs> yeah exactly and, and the pro- I mean, and I don't mean to say that in some derogatory way. Like that is like you are building a thing that people are going to use, and it has to work, and it, and, they, and it has to work well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we will figure out how, like, why it works later. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like you'll. It's like God, to go back to gossip. <laughs> it's like presumably there was some issues running, you know, traditional like what, like Z tests or whatever, like doing non T tests that he was he's running into problems and there was no way to resolve them without understanding what was going on better, you know? And so I feel like what Jan LeCun is saying is like, Hey, we haven't run into those problems yet. So <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah. Or maybe we have run into those problems and we fixed them by just kind of experimenting and seeing what works and, and this thing was better. And so we went that way, you know? And so it's like, well, just, I was going to say like the increase in computational, uh, like the difference between Gossett and now is that Gossett could have just run a ton of simulations and been like, huh, this is weird. Here's like what you need to adjust by um, to get the results that we feel like we should get versus uh, versus like now we could just do that and not have to not necessarily have to have the theory for a long time. 
Right. Like we can kind of delay that kind of for a little bit for a little while. And like I think just yeah, always so I think, simulate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think your point that is like they're they're kind of talking at different kind of angles. Like I don't know what the right metaphor is, but and like from someone who's trying to teach this to like a bunch of students it it just uh, it just feels very unsatisfying you know yeah for um, sure for sure and uh and like you know and just in a simple case like sometimes like i teach shiny to people um to you know for building like web apps and there's you know i, I like shiny there's nothing wrong with it but it's like when you teach it it's not like you're teaching some general principle about i don't know what like it's like you're just to- showing them how to like produce an app right and it's like so it feels very different from like teaching linear regression i don't know yeah it's uh it's just because it's like when i teach linear regression i say first i say yes here's how you do it but then i also say like here's what's going on and here's why this works and here's why it doesn't and it you know it feels different so what i enjoy about this example is that i feel like it's the classic case of like people with egos taking things personally when they don't need to be taken personally (laughs) (laughs) my my understanding from the event is that it was all very civilized actually yeah Um, i'm sure but still it's like it's like it seems so clear that the issue is different motivations and that's fine that's like an expected state of the world and yet it turned into this all like well why does that matter my thing is the most important you know what i mean (laughs) Yeah, everyone had to like stake their ground and like mark their territory. Yeah, like talking right? past each other and like taking it all as like an affront to their entire career and identity. And, like, <laughs> <it's>, like... <laughs> well, I don't know. I wasn't there, so I don't know what the tone of it was. But um, yeah, it was. Yeah, anyway, I might it was... be. I might. I might be feeling being ungenerous in how I'm filling in the blanks <laughs> here. So <laughs> you're you're filling in the gaps of my. Uh... <laughs> yeah. I'll go back and try to, although I'm kind of enjoying like my, I've been, you know, not on Twitter as much and I am kind of enjoying my ignorance right now where I'm like, Oh, I had no idea. And yeah. That's okay. I'm jealous of you uh, to be honest. You're, you're literally on sabbatical, like no better time than now to just be totally yes. out of it, but also probably the hardest time to actually do that <laughs> when you're like, away from everyone you know and you're like oh let's go on twitter and see what everyone's up to yeah yeah, yeah. i think you're anyway um... <laughs> <laughs> speaking of Jan lacoon actually i have stopped using facebook actually really completely more yeah i've actually like i've logged out <laughs> oh oh you've logged but you haven't deactivated you just logged out no i haven't like deleted my account but i've actually logged out so like i'm not logged in anywhere on facebook did you like change your password so that you don't know it? No, I haven't done that. But you know, honestly, like, <laughs> I haven't. It hasn't really made a big difference. Like, I've logged out. I haven't used it for a couple of weeks, and it's like I don't really miss. Yeah, anything. that's so funny. I guess yeah. It's just the the. I understand what you're saying, but that would be so not a barrier for me. In part because I have LastPass, which like auto fills my login credentials anytime I visit a website. So like. <laughs> The solution would not work long for me, is what I'm saying. You know, I have that same setup, but it doesn't seem to be a problem. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't you know. logged out and but you just never go to Facebook.com. I just, yeah, I just never go. I did have to, I did have to delete the app from my phone, though. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that's a good one. But, like, yeah. what if someone writes something on your page that's, like, horrible 
And you, you yeah. What if someone? What if right now is the moment when your like college freshman roommate decides to post all the photos that he took of you while you were sleeping or something? You know, it's like damn you, Hillary Parker. Now I gotta log in. <laughs> I know. Or, just... or, or, can you check for me to make sure it hasn't happened? <laughs> That's not fair. Just like keep, <laughs> make sure that, no, that's not. That could I be, that like... could be like someone in your immediate family curating. Your... <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's beyond the co-host duties. <laughs> you know, from maybe from now on, anytime I need to post something on Facebook, I'll just like, I'll send it to you and then have you post it for me. Yeah, it's like, I, I just thought of this the other day when Kramer on Seinfeld decides to get rid of his fridge and then he's like always going to Jerry's house to borrow yeah. food. Like, right. <laughs> so it's kind of, or like use the fridge. So it's kind of like that. Right. It's like. <laughs> there was an Onion article where the headline was like, minimalist friend wants to borrow your shoes again. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like your minimalist friend needs a ride yet again. Right. Yeah. Well, good for you. Okay. I don't know how we got on this tangent, but I know. Um, <laughs> I did have one more question for you, though. One more topic for you, and I, okay. I particularly wanted to pick your brain on this topic. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a follow-up to uh, our last episode, um, where we talked a little bit about how you mentioned in particular that um, it, it's important to have data scientists that are like engaged and kind of understand the the product that they're selling basically right i mean mm -hmm. uh, yeah. because because there's like things that you bring to a data analysis that um that are kind of intangible right i guess mm -hmm. is kind of how i would characterize it and so like if you understand if you use the product and if you really like it and if you're in fully engaged and it's like you will bring additional kind of knowledge to a data analysis that's not purely encoded in the data right i guess mm -hmm. how i'd summarize it um so i was wondering i was thinking about this the other day i was like would you how would you feel capable of evaluating the quality of a data analysis if you did not know anything about the person who did it so like essentially like a blinded like you have no idea if the person understood the context at all yeah. So yeah. So so if you separated the analysis from the person who did it, and maybe mm -hmm. another way to ask that question is, if you if I just handed you like a, I don't know, a an analysis like a report, with no names and nothing, right? And then later I told you who did it and what their background was and what their association was, etc. Like, do you think that information would influence what you thought in any way? What you thought of the analysis? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think, I feel like there are people who have done, um, things like this with, uh, specifically related to like gender and minority status in terms of like looking at resumes and such. Um, and I would assume data analysis, I feel like there was something like that, right? Looking at data analyses of I, I can't, people. I don't recall there one being about data analyses specifically i do there have been a number of studies with like resumes and stuff yeah um, yeah and but so, uh in terms of and like hiring people for jobs and stuff but yeah I, I feel like a data evaluating data analyses would be pretty niche um yeah but well i so what i would i, I would like to think <laughs> that my theory is that you would notice certain flaws in a data analysis by someone who's a non-expert in the field whereas like 
oh yeah they they pointed out this thing about you know like whatever the application is like you know street cleaning times but they didn't realize that you know it's a federal holiday on this day so there's never street cleaning you know what i mean like uh-huh, like uh-huh. but then i'm not gonna act like uh any of us including myself would be free from like the you know bias <laughs> of of like being like oh this person knows nothing about this field and i can't believe i thought this analysis was so good like never mind so it's sort of an interesting idea. It makes me want to have someone do that that more niche study of like. Well, well, hold on a second. So it's not one of the things that's not clear to me is what is the ideal is is the ideal scenario one in which you can completely separate the person from the analysis. That's yeah. Maybe that's what I'm asking. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> I must go back to like art. You know, <laughs> it's like is the artist yeah. important? I mean, it sort of is. You know. Um, in the scenarios that I feel like I tend to want to talk about where you're talking about a data scientist as an influential person in a meeting and like leading projects and, um, you know, just generally being someone who's providing more than just number crunching, then I think it is really important to understand their context. Whereas in the kind of like, uh, I don't even know whose ideal it is, but some sort of like scientific ideal of, you know, oh, the analysis happens in a vacuum and that's completely acceptable. And, you know, interpretation of it will happen by different parties. Then like in that, in that like construct of the world, then it wouldn't matter who did it. But I just don't, I don't believe that construct of the world could ever exist is maybe what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think that's kind of where I'm going because I, with this because I feel like like in our conversation last time we talked about how like, you know, if you get you you get all this kind of kind of inside information so to speak when you are involved in like collecting the data, right? Mhm. Um and so if you were not involved in collecting the data, then it seems like you would be at a disadvantage when you were subsequently analyzing the data, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd have to like earn that trust by doing, showing the people who you're showing the analysis to, communicating to via analysis that like you did your due diligence other ways. Like, oh yeah, I did interviews, et cetera, et cetera. Looked at usability testing. Um, right. So you somehow gained that knowledge in another way, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, I don't know. I, 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 I wasn't expecting there to be an answer. It's just one of these things I've been thinking about just because, yeah, it is kind of like it. There, I have also thought about art, right? Because like, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you watch a movie, like, does it matter who made it or, you know, or, you know, or if you see a painting or does it matter who painted it? Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And can you evaluate the quality of the painting without knowing, you know, who the artist was or something like that? Right. Mm-hmm. Um. And certainly in the writing world, there's people who've played around with that a lot, right? With like, like uh, I'm thinking of what is the Italian woman? There's like those, um, those books by someone like a famous pseudonym, like yeah, about I know friendship. Who, and, okay, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I don't remember the name though. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, I mean, her whole point—it was like part of the art that she was like, you know, being an author is such a performance, and it's like it's part of you know, 
like the work can't exist alone it has to exist in the context of like understanding the like there's kind of like this kind of like performance there's like a distasteful performance aspect to being an author that she was trying to stay away from um and um I feel like it's like Ferrante or something like Elena Ferrante. Yeah, Laura, like Laura Ferrante, I think is. is yeah, it? something. Yeah. This like okay. terrible. People are gonna be <laughs> mad. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, I don't. But yeah, it's just like it's it's just it's like acting like you could encode everything. It's like it's like trying to like suck away the creativity of doing a data analysis, where it's like, oh yeah, like. At anything anyone could have generated this because it's just like numbers zeros and ones coming together and making something when it's just like I so fundamentally believe that's not the case for like a complex analysis of like a complex system where it has to be someone's like like there you can't separate the person from the work they're doing and you can't separate the work from the person yeah one thing I think that is distinct about data analysis that I think we don't often explicitly say is that, um, like, you know, if you look at a painting, right, uh, or a book, for example, like, for the most part, when the book is on the bookshelves at the bookstore, you know, the book is done, right? Uh, and the painting, when it's hanging in the museum, it's done. Like, the painting's not, they're not going to send it back to the painter, but, like, oh, can you fix this? And, like, you know, can you touch this <laughs> up a little bit? Or, you know, like, like it's done. <laughs> yeah. And, but I think with the data analysis, very, most often, it's, like, not done. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's going to be questions, and there's going to be feedback, and you're going to have to rerun something, and you're going to have to do this and do that, and you're going to come back, and there's going to be more feedback and more questions, and it's good, and there's going to be this like circle, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, um, it's not going to be done for a while, right? And uh, and I think even my experience, like most data analyses, kind of like they, they kind of peter off in the sense that like you fit you you kind of shut every door and every little like. Uh, sensitivity analysis and eventually there's like nothing left to do and you're like okay we're you know we'll we'll now we'll write up the paper or whatever right mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and it's I, like the editing process like a like getting a book to your editor and back and right yeah 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 so i, I in that sense then it's like you can't separate the person right because you're gonna have to go back to that person at some point you know right right and, um, yeah uh and it's gonna be this long process um mm -hmm. so i don't know that's just my yeah, no, it's an interesting, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. I just think it's, it, I always feel like I'm going back. I know it's like been our theme for so long now, but I'm always going back to this, the idea that it's not, it's like almost a shame that statistics departments are in math departments because it's so not, you know, proof based. <laughs> it's not like this dry, not that math dry, but you know what I mean? Like, it's not just oh, this is a watertight proof and therefore this is true. It's like so different than that. Um, yeah. 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 I feel and like so... for me, like the, like the theorem, like a proof is it's like, it's more like a painting, right? Like if it works, mm -hmm. then it's done, you know, it's like, yeah. Um... Yeah. I guess paintings are less subject to feedback than books. Yeah. I, well, I don't know about, I, what do I know about painting? But <laughs> right. No, yeah, you're right. Maybe we're just yeah. saying that because we don't like, <laughs> we don't like participate in it that much. But I mean, I think, you know, books go through a lot of feedback, whatever, with editors and whatnot. But once it's on the shelf, it's done. Like, I mean, you're not, there's no like version two of the book, right? Yeah. I mean, but uh, there are data like... analysis equivalents of that. Like, you know, when you file your S1, like the numbers in that are going to be the final draft. Um, no, yeah, I get, yeah. 
I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, but usually the thing that you're looking at at the end of the day is not. It's not like the analysis. Like the analysis is incorporated into the final product, but it's not the final product. You know. Well, <laughs> it depends on what you're calling the analysis, right? Yeah. Like, yeah okay. Yeah. I, I just think that yeah. you know, for example, in you know, if, if I publish a paper, like obviously the data analysis is a critical part of that paper, um, but it's not the only part, and. Um, and, and there are other things that kind of get integrated in, in terms of the interpretation and the context and, and, and all that stuff. So, But other, I mean, in other fields, like a financial analyst or something that I think that, and I mean, analysis in other fields can mean like the whole, <laughs> the whole kit and caboodle, right? <laughs> like, like analysis can mean just like discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Of what happened. So it's yeah. not like like separating out the literal number crunching from the interpretation might be part of the problem. You see what I mean? <laughs> I believe I think I do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it's like very much data after dark. <laughs> what <Yeah>. is analysis? <laughs> no, no, we we're going to get to that question one of these days. Maybe not. To, maybe not today. But we're going to get we're going to get deep one day. Exactly. Yeah. It'll be good. <laughs> Yeah. We'll get all this all answered right. and we'll figure out why like you doing your financial monitoring is different than this. Right. Yeah. So I realized that it's the episode's gone a little long, but since it's the last one of twenty seventeen, I thought we need to cram as much in as we could. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. No. Uh, I feel like we should wish everyone happy new year. It's kinda of hard to believe actually. My God. Um <laughs> And it doesn't feel like that here because it's like yesterday it hit 100 degrees. So, um... Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. <laughs> I just, yeah, like, I, I mean, it was a really chilly 65 here. So it's been in the like the low 60s. So, you know, really. You, guys, you must be dying over there. Yep. I was talking to my mom and she, she was like, it's 28 today. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's 65 here. <laughs> Glad I'm not there. <laughs> yeah. I just can't get into like. The Christmas spirit when it's like 100 degrees outside. It just doesn't yeah. work for me. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get that for sure. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? No, I think that's that's it. <laughs> we're going out We're going out with a whimper. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> oh, there is one more thing. Actually, I should have said, I mentioned this in the beginning. Um, oh, yeah. It's about Patreon. So we have our, our Patreon uh patrons that we're very grateful for mm-hmm. um and earlier in the week patreon announced like a change to their policy of how they charge people um and the proposed change was that they were going to charge people like a 2.9 percent service charge every time mm-hmm. they like contributed to a patron which is like it's kind of ridiculous if you're like contributing a dollar you know <laughs> right yeah wasn't um, it 35 cents plus 2.9 yeah it was 35 cents plus 2.9 percent yeah so um so it's and like so people on patreon were like outraged and um and they've so they've kind of rolled it all they've like did like they're like you know basically they rolled it all back they were like we're just kidding we weren't gonna do it <laughs> oh, okay kidding, great but, yeah um, but they they took it all back and they're gonna figure out how to do it some other way so now when if you're a patron and you get charged a dollar, you're just going to get charged. If you want to contribute a dollar, you're just going to get charged a dollar. So, um, Good. Great. That's, so it's just like it was before. <laughs> <laughs> but if you saw any rumblings on Twitter or whatever, you can forget about it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And glad people brought that to our attention too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did not want that to be the user experience right. of our generous patrons. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess that's our episode. That's ep- the for this time and for the rest of this year. So uh, we will see you next year with another episode.